We started this study way back in the fall of last year, I believe it was, so we're kind of making our way through this book. We're in chapter 10 today, and we'll be in uh, verses 26 and take that through the end of the chapter in uh, chapter thir- uh, verse 39. So I want to tell you a quick story. There's a, there's a story, it's a well-known story of a man who was a little bit overweight, and this man made this vow to kind of correct that. So what he did is he said, I'm not going to go to my favorite donut shop anymore. And I'm, I'm just going to take a different route so I don't go by that donut shop because those donuts contributed to his issue. So he, he makes this vow. And to take it a step further for an accountability aspect, he decides, I'm going to tell my office, my coworkers, that I'm no longer going to go to this donut shop. I changed my route. I'm not going in there anymore. Of course, days, weeks pass, and all of a sudden, this guy shows up to work, and he's got a bag full of donuts. And the people around him are like, what are you doing? He's like, wait, wait, wait. Don't, don't judge me just yet. These donuts are from the Lord. I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? See, this is what happened. I was driving to work, and I accidentally drove past this same route that I normally take to work. So I accidentally looked over, and I saw all these beautiful donuts and pastries in the window, and I knew I was going to need strength. So I prayed to the Lord, give me strength. And if you really want me to have those donuts, Lord, open up a a spot right in the front of the shop, and I'll know that that's what you wanted me to do. And he said, and that's what he did. After eight times driving around the block, that's exactly what the Lord did. He opened up a spot in the begin, right in the front, so I drove in. So these donuts, you guys, were from the Lord. We do that sometimes, don't we? We, we push that envelope, and we, we, we stretch that rubber band as far as it goes before it snaps, and we're kind of testing ourselves at the same time. Lord, are you really, you really don't want this from me, do you? That story comes from a book that I, I read uh, back in, in school called uh, Life Essentials from Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas. And uh, he shares a story as he opened up a chapter speaking about temptation. And, and we, we have to obviously continue to look at ourselves in those lights as well and, and make sure we're guarding ourselves over temptation. And if you really listen closely to that silly story, you'll see that this man deliberately drove by this donut shop again. He deliberately made the action after he knew it was wrong. He knew he shouldn't have done it, but he succumbed to his temptations, and he deliberately went there. And, and again, Christians and non-Christians alike, we have that tendency, don't we? We do that very frequently. So what we're going to do this morning as we look at chapter 10 and finish this chapter, um, you'll see that in this context of what we've learned so far in Hebrews, um, we'll see that this has, we're going to help kind of piece this together and see how it affects us today. And what we'll see here today, too, is that, um, frankly, this is not an easy passage. If you've read this passage before, it's not an easy passage. So I want to kind of set the table a little bit, kind of help you to understand where we're heading with this passage so that we have a good idea of what we're doing. Frankly speaking, and I did this this week, if you look at 10 different commentaries on this passage, you're very likely to get 10 different viewpoints of what this passage is teaching. So I uh, I got the short end of the stick on this passage this week, right? Pastor Pat and I have both really taken uh, a deliberate approach to the the entire book of Hebrews. And one of the things we've done since we started in some of these, what we call warning passages in Hebrews, is that we looked at it from a specific viewpoint. And this is the premise we have, that the writer of Hebrews, 
author is technically unknown, is writing to a local congregation, and his exhortations and warnings we see throughout the epistle are, 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 are pastoral in nature. So this is a pastor who is writing to his church, and he's attempting to get them to kind of straighten up a little bit. So think about it this way. In any local congregation, you're going to have people within it that have varying levels of maturity. In every local congregation, you're going to have people who might be exploring Christianity for the first time. You're going to have people who, who are kind of stagnant in their faith. You're going to have people who may look like Christians on the outside, but may not have truly surrendered their life to the Lord. And if, if, if this, some of this sounds familiar, this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of topic come up. In fact, we saw that all the way back in chapter 2. We saw it again in chapter 6. So we've seen this before. And um, one of the things that we need to kind of answer to help us to figure out what this is saying is who is the writer addressing in this passage? We need to understand that for this whole thing to make sense for us. So again, what we talked about earlier is I believe, and we believe that this is something that's addressed to Christians uh, during a certain time. And I'll give you three examples of why we believe that. First example comes from chapter 2. Chapter 2 is one of those warning passages. And what we did is, is, is we pulled out some pronouns from those warning passages that help us to understand that there's an inclusiveness in there. And some of those include we and us. And what we saw there as well is it was addressed to and the writer was speaking directly to the holy brothers or brothers. And that's, those are terms that are used all throughout the entire epistle to the Hebrews. Second example comes from chapter 6, and we saw in verses 3 through 5 that there are descriptions that the writer makes about this group of people. And in these descriptions, um, none of these really give us the impression that he was talking to a group of non-Christians. Um, and, and nowhere throughout when he's using these descriptive terms does it tell us that he's addressing non-Christians throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Um, some of these terms include enlightened which is in our text that we'll see here in a few moments. And other examples include tasted and shared, right? You've tasted the, the good news. You've shared in this gospel experience. So it's all, you know, again, it's, it's inclusive of, a, of an entire body, a singular body. Third example is from our text just from last week. We opened up uh, chapter 10 last week, and that opening section in verse 19 starts with brothers. Or some of the more modern translations might have brothers and sisters, And what that, again, of course, is speaking of those who have that full assurance of faith and who have had a true heart. So, again, I think we can safely conclude that these warning passages address the general need for Christians and local believers in that local congregation to mature in their faith and to take that walk with Jesus in a more meaningful and deliberate way. So I think that's that's how we're going to approach our text today. That's how we're going to tackle this text today. So with that background, I'm going to also kind of break it into two parts. So there's, there's going to be two parts to this, um, this passage that we're reading today. First passage is in verses 26 through 31, and those are kind of your warning passages, these warning verses. And then in verses 32 to 39, this is the encouragement that the writer is providing back. You know, it's that comfort that he's going to provide as he uh, continues through his warning. So our main idea from our passage this morning is this. How you respond to the gospel carries significant eternal consequences. How you respond to the gospel 
carry significant eternal consequences. So let's go ahead and begin by reading this first section. In this first section here, uh, starting at verse 26 through 31, it reads this way. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy of the, on the evidence of two or more two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Wow, that sounds harsh. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, passage that we're looking at. And I would say that there's probably three different ways that we can approach this specific text. First thing we can do is we can look at it from the direct context from the preceding verses in the preceding section. Um, and really, if you look at it, namely verses 24 and 25. And, and, and what we see there, so the word for in verse 26 kind of connects these two sections. And it, it, that, the section we looked at last week, if you weren't here, we talked about this idea that Christians are to draw near to each other. They're going to be holding fast. They're going to stir up one another in good works. And then they're going to gather together. So those were four of these characteristics that we saw last week. And that climax of that section really was around the idea of, of not neglecting to meet together. So the writer here possibly is speaking to how some in this group of Christian believers in this local congregation, there may have been some who had strayed away not only from God and from Christ and what they've heard, but they've also strayed away from the people of God. Or we can also approach this, con uh, this, this section under the direct context of verse 28. Verse 28 talks about this idea and he uses the example of the law. And, and what he does here, and if you look at this throughout the entire letter, what the writer is doing, he's escalating Christ while he's de-escalating the old covenant. So, and of course, that includes the law. So the writer might be saying, if you turn back to the law and live under the law for that idea and for the purpose of redemption, you will also be rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus. And you will, of course, be disappointed in relying back on the law. So that's kind of what uh, another approach. The third approach could be this, and that's, again, to approach this section with the entire context of the entire epistle of Hebrews. This is to say, as our sermon series uh, title states, which is greater than, it's to say that, that Christ and everything that he did and will do is greater than anything that preceded him. And they were, were because, and the reason that he's greater than those things, because those things were only a shadow of what was to come. So we've discussed this much already, uh, but and it, it implies, and there's an implication there, that evidently some of these Hebrew converts were trying to, or at least considering going back to the old covenant system of worship. And in doing so, when they do that, they're rejecting Christ and the work that he's done. So those are a few ways that we can possibly look at it. So therefore, the, the, the writer is, is issuing a very strong warning of judgment to those who decide to do that. 
Now, when we open, we stated that there's really several interpretations to this passage. One of those interpretations that, that's probably noteworthy to talk through just a little bit is, is the writer of Hebrews, is he stating that the Christian can lose their salvation? If you look at the language in verse 26, it's pretty harsh. Is that what the writer is saying? And, and I would say absolutely not. The scriptures as a whole do not teach that a Christian can lose their salvation. And again, not surprisingly, we have seen this in this book already, um, going back to chapter 6. Two verses will stand out, and it'll make more sense after we read them and talk through them. But verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6 read this way. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I'll, I'll tie this in here in just a second. So what we learned from this specific passage, this was an illustration the writer uh, used to describe this piece of land, and that land can be kind of tied back to a local congregation, this land that produces both good fruit and good produce, useful crops, and then it also produces thorns and thistles. So within one land, not two, within one land, both of these things could happen. So this illustration was directly attached to this idea of falling away that we saw in chapter 6. So in chapter 6, there's a warning about falling away, and that's what the writer was doing then. So again, we see that same concept here in chapter 10. So accordingly, this same passage shows this idea of what we call a kind of rewards or judgment, or as Pastor Pat talked about when he covered this in chapter 6, he kind of used the terms blessing and curses, like we did with the land example. So I think we can clearly see that this section is a warning to those who are contemplating this return to this old system of worship. And then again, we see that there are eternal consequences for doing so. In fact, he uses this idea and this example of the law in our text today, saying that even under the law, there were certain sins and we, uh, that, that weren't being able to be atoned for, right? So when, when the, the high priest goes in, he was atoning for those accidental type sins. So we have to see that as well. So all that to say, well, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for us today? So I want to kind of quickly, before we answer that specific question, I want to quickly go through some of these actions that, that are being warned against. So some of these actions include these. Number first one is to go on sinning deliberately. This idea of going on and sinning deliberately. This really means that, that there's somebody, someone who has received the good news, who understands the good news, understands the penalty of sin as death, Yet they still make that very informed decision. It's almost like they have that eternal battle going back and forth, and they know if I commit this sin, I'm standing against the Lord, yet they still do it. That's that idea of deliberate sin. As somebody who understands and has received the gospel and has understood it enough to understand the consequences of going into that so that they, they, they make that conscious decision to continue into that sin. Another, another example he, he gives here is that uh, those who have trampled underfoot the Son of God, trampled underfoot the Son of God. This implies a complete disregard of the things of God. It's, it's a disgracing, and it disgraces the, the work that Christ performed. 
It's trampling on him. So the third one here is that they, it, you know, they were profaning the blood of the covenant. Once again, this idea that, that by taking these actions, what they're going to be doing is placing the sacrifice of Jesus in the blood that he shed for our sins as obsolete. And then the last one he, he warns against is that they have outraged the spirit of grace. Outraged the spirit of grace. The writer might be warning of this, this complete rejection of the Holy Spirit, um, but I also want to point out that there's two Old Testament quotes that the writer uses here, and they both come from Deuteronomy. And in the context of those verses here is their, the people's response to the Old Covenant. Their response to that Old Covenant, they're part of that kind of agreement that they made with God. So he's warning of those consequences of breaking that covenant with the Lord. So here are some implications that we can pull from this first section. And we, we looked, again, we looked at a very similar passage back in chapter 6, and, and in reviewing some of that, I, you know, there's actually a couple things in there that we can pull that were, that's very useful for us today, too. So we're going to use some of those ideas from that. First one here is don't unnecessarily question my salvation. When Christians read passages such as this, they have this tendency to be like, oh, wait, am I really saved? Am I not? And if you really look at a lot of the epistles, there's a lot that talks about that. John talks about it in his first epistle, for example. But this passage, again, is not teaching that a Christian who has truly been saved can lose their salvation. Rather, what it's doing, it's helping us to see that there are consequences of our sin. And then any type of judgment or discipline that we do receive from the Lord, it's always for the purpose of drawing us back to him. It's always for that purpose. And then uh, accordingly, the second thing we see here is, is don't go back. And again, we saw this back in chapter 6. Don't go back to that way that was not sufficient. Going back, the writer is saying, is, is essentially to say that the blood of Christ was not enough. That's what, that's what you're saying to the God, God our Father, when you turn back to your old ways, is that the blood of Christ was not sufficient. I'm going to go find my own way because it might be better. So you see that, that how we respond to the gospel carries significant eternal consequences. And again, hopefully we went through that fairly quickly. There's a lot of information there. It's kind of deep information. Hopefully we've cleared it up a little bit for you. And again, there is encouragement that comes from this. There is something that comes that the writer directly goes into. He offers some hope. He offers them some encouragement. So let's read what he says as he finishes out this section, verses 32 to 39. It says this, But recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were treated, so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrunk back, the writer says, and and are destroyed, but of those who have come to faith and preserve their souls. 
that sounds a little bit better than that first part, didn't it? That, that term, enlightened in 32, is the same term we saw last week, and it basically means to bring to light. It's to bring to light, enlightened, right? And, and no surprise to me, again, we saw this in chapter 6, and again, what we can see is this ties directly to verse 26, talking about those who have received the knowledge of the truth. So the writer here is, again, speaking to the Christian people of his time and speaking to a specific local congregation. And these people, according to what we see from this passage, they were persecuted early on for their faith. They were persecuted, but through that they had joy, and through that they showed kindness to others. And when we're persecuted, it's really easy to kind of hold it to ourselves and to be unkind to others, but they showed kindness to others, and they didn't throw away their confident hope. In a word, they endured. So again, what are the implications for us today? The implications for us today, there's a couple of them. First thing is that we are to live by faith. We are to live by faith. I don't know about you, I can't help but think that this, this section is setting us up for chapter 11, which is re, uh, most commonly known as the faith chapter, the great faith chapter of the Bible. But also notice that the writer is bringing us back to a very well-known passage that's quoted several times in the New Testament from Habakkuk 2.4. Paul quoted this in Romans chapter 1 and again in Galatians chapter 3. And this verse speaks to the Christian living by faith. So I think, again, think about it once again, the full context of this epistle, returning back to old system, shows a lapse of faith. And it, it shows a lapse of faith in a Savior who saved, by, who, who saved us by grace, not by this system of works. So these Christians already showed that they once lived by faith, even through some of the most difficult times, and even when their homes were plundered, the text says. And they were publicly reproached, and it, the text implies that some may have even been imprisoned because of it. So they looked forward to their reward, which produced that confidence that they needed in our Savior, which is exactly what we need even today. So real quickly, what does this idea of faith and living by faith look like? The idea of living by faith, number one, I think is clearly stated here in this passage, in this section, but I think we can also say that they endured a, a significant struggle. They endured a significant struggle, and during that struggle, their faith didn't waver. During that struggle, they continued to do the will of God. During that struggle, they remained confident in spite of these circumstances that are not easy to deal with. And I know that can hopefully speak to several of you today. So we saw that these trials produced confidence, but we also can say that these trials also produce endurance, which is our second thing we can take from this. Trials produce endurance. I can't help but be reminded of James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, that doesn't sound joyful. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that in you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word endurance that we see in our passage today is used elsewhere as steadfastness and perseverance. It's the same word that's being used there. So remember and recall, anytime we talk about perseverance, steadfastness, endurance in the scriptures, we're generally talking about this idea of a patient and cheerful waiting. 
And if we pull that idea in the direct context that we see here in verses 25 and 37, we can see that this hope that we're looking forward to is the return of our Lord Jesus, that second coming. That's what we're talking about. That's the hope that we have as Christians living in today's world is that return. So as we wait, we know that we are con- have to continue on in our faith and continue doing the work that he has endured for us. And, and the writer here is exhorting us to do just that. I'll be the first to admit I'm pretty impatient. It's hard to wait for things. And I'll give you an example. When I was about 18 years old, and I'm, I'm, this is a little bit of an embarrassing story, I'm not going to lie. But when I was about 18 years old, I'm going to peek up a little bit, like, ooh, should be good. Uh, I bought a Toyota from, uh, from my church. My church had this Toyota. It was donated to them. I bought it from them because I wanted to drive. So I bought this Toyota from them, and it was a manual transmission. And uh, so I'm trying to learn how to drive this, this car, and I was having a hard time picking it up because I'm a terrible, terrible learner. Just ask my dad. And, and I had a horrible, horrible time figuring this darn thing out. So after I kept trying, I was getting impatient. I had a few bucks in my savings account, so I pull it all out. I go run to Orange County. I was living in California at the time. And I go buy a car with cash because I was too impatient to wait to figure out how to drive this other vehicle. So I, I ended up selling that car. I have my, my other one, my, my automatic car. But here's what ended up happening. What happened? Ever since then, I've bought automatic transmissions. I don't know how to drive a manual. I'm sorry. I'll give you my man card later. Okay, I can't, you know, but if I was just a little bit more patient, I would have not only had a car without spending my savings, but I also would have had the, a new skill that I didn't have before. If I just gave it just a little bit more time. And I think we saw that a little bit with the Hebrew church here. We see that they had this, uh, this unfortunate impatience that caused them to, to kind of step out and say, well, this isn't happening fast enough. We've gone through all of this trouble. We've gone through all this pain and suffering. I'm just going to go back now because at least that system worked for us. And that's not what the author of Hebrews is asking us to do. The text is implying that, again, there are some that were so bad they were just contemplating going back. And he's saying, please don't. Please don't. So again, we see how how we respond to the gospel carries significant, significant eternal consequences. And I know we've had a fairly heavy topic after a fairly light topic last week. Here's the reality of it, though, both for the Hebrew audience that this letter was written to and for us even today. Verse 39, I think, is that comfort that we kind of need. If you hadn't noticed, the writer went from you Right, The writer was exhorting you, 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 the audience, and he now, in verse 39, he turns it back and says, we. So he's saying, now we, together, we have endured. He says here in verse 39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and have preserved their souls. He's like, don't worry, I'm not saying that you guys are in trouble. I'm just saying, hey, this is something that y'all need to be worried about. So we've learned this in chapter 2, that those who have drifted away from the Lord have not lost their salvation, but rather they're drifting further and further away. And he's saying, please don't do that. It's bad for your spiritual health. The writer is confident, though, that this group of believers that he's writing to have not gotten to that point. But he's saying, hey, some of you might be dangerously close. So how do we know if we're dangerously close to drifting away? Here's, I'm going to give you just three quick examples. It's not a comprehensive list. One of the examples could be this. You just stop growing spiritually. 
if you stop growing spiritually, that might be a sign that you've started drifting away. Another example might be this. You've stopped gathering with the saints. Are you, are you isolating yourself to the point where you're not around other Christian believers who could encourage you and stir you up for, for love and good works? Here's a very simple example. You've stopped reading your Bible. You've stopped praying. Those are ways you can really understand internally if you've started drifting away. And we've talked about this many times, so I'm not going to belabor the point. Um, and, I, and if you were here last week, you may have recalled I, I said that I had a point in my life where I kind of drifted away. So I'm going to give an example of that. And I've told this story several times before, and I know some of you have heard it, and I apologize. I'm sure you're sick of it. But in 2004, I left this bad relationship, and I felt free. I was free. So I started spending a lot of time out with my friends. And, and one of the things that happened after a very long night of celebrating a birthday of a friend of mine who now lives in Washington, I drove home, and I fell asleep. Fell asleep by the wheel, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, hit a light pole head on downtown Los Angeles. Ever been on the 110 freeway in LA? Not a fun freeway to crash on. So 110 freeway head on into a light pole. My car was obviously destroyed and arguably speaking I was too. And I told you there's consequences for these sins, right? And there was a consequence for mine. Mine included seven days in the hospital, you know, in the basically the motorcycle accident ward. That's where all the guys who had significant leg injuries were. And, and I had a shattered tibia where I still have hardware in it to this day. I had two screws in my ankle, two in my knee, and I got a rod in my tibia. And I had a dislocated hip. And from that day, even to this point, almost 18 years later, I have arthritic, arthritic knees. I got a sore hip every once in a while, and it affects how I'm able to do things because of the consequences of me drifting away from God. One of the things that my mom was praying during that time <laughs> was for me to slow down. It took me running into a light pole to slow down. And um, that, those were some of those consequences. And really, in many ways, I didn't really draw closer to God until we came back here to Thornydale. It took us leaving home, coming here, and kind of starting over again almost 12 years ago and, and started coming back to church regularly and finding a home where we can really dig into. And since then, my wife was baptized. My oldest daughter was baptized. I realized my call. And I have the privilege of standing before you today. And, and those are some of those things that allow us, when we draw closer back to the Lord, then we're useful again. We're useful again in the kingdom, and that's what you did for us and for me and for my family. And it obviously wasn't by chance. I didn't realize at the time in 2009 why we were going to end up in Tucson. I had no idea. I thought it was a stop along a journey. But here we are. This is home. This is family. This is where God has called us to be. And it's all by his grace, nothing that I did. So if you're suffering today from just heartache, right? This is why we're here together. This is why we have our brothers and sisters. But you also might be suffering from this deliberate sin that we talked about when we opened. 
And if you're suffering from that deliberate sin, my call to you now is just repent. Repent from that sin. Turn back. Scratch that. Run back to the Lord. Run back to the Lord. That's what we need to be doing. Get plugged in, right? Run back to the Lord and get plugged in here and, and, and provide a service to your brothers and sisters. We'd love to be a part of that. We'd love to help you to do that. So if that's something you need to do, please see me after the service. Steve, Lauren, Joel, our elders are here as well. We'd love to be a part of that. Let's go and pray as we close our time. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Uh, for many of us here in this room, we have been saved from, from drifting away. We've been saved um, from a lifestyle of sin. And I know there's probably some of us here now that continue to suffer from these things. And I, I ask God for your strength to be upon us. Not like the donut guy where we eventually will drift back to that shop. But help us to be removed from those things that hold us back from you and from growing in you. Help us to be connected with other Christians that help us and encourage us and guide us and help us to do that. Help us to draw close to you by reading your word and spending time in prayer. Help us draw close to you by finding a church home that's going to allow us to do this together. And I know, God, that there's some who... Who, who do suffer from these things, and we just want to pray for them specifically now and ask God that you just change their hearts now and allow them, Father, to, to have that spirit um, uh, of repentance so they can draw closer to you. That's really what we desire. There is a specific response that we all need to have to the gospel message, and we ask God that you provide that, that, that conviction to respond in the proper way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.